Well, good morning again. Let me invite you to remain standing um, as we open up God's Word. Um, it is truly a blessing to be back with you after our sojourn. I realized um, just this morning this was the longest I had been away from Redeemer since like 2006. So um, I am so happy to be back. It's such a mainstay in my life. Uh, just being with the saints at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. What a blessing it is. We're continuing our story uh, through Acts and uh, continuing to look and see what God is doing as the gospel goes forward from Jerusalem, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. And we have come to a very familiar passage to many of us, Paul's conversion. Um, we could call him Paul, that's his Latin name, or Saul, his Hebrew name, it's okay. I'll probably use both interchangeably today. But now let's turn our attention to God's holy word, coming to us from chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I do pray that by your grace you would come and speak. Come and speak powerfully through your word. Come and remind us of the amazing grace of the conversion that you make happen in the lives of your people. Come and commission us for service and love. Come, Lord Jesus, and speak powerfully in us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
So I really like the, um, the thing that happens on your iPhone when it sends you a notification from your pictures or videos. I don't know if you get those on your phones, but they tend to send you memories of years past. Oftentimes, if you're in a certain place, it might send you pictures from that place. Well, last week, Haley got a notification on her phone. It was a video of Graham, our five-year-old, three years ago. So he was two at the time. And so we clicked on the video and we watched it together. And it's just a video of him standing at the table and about ready to pick up Haley's sparkling water. And I say to him, now, Graham, be careful. It's like a full can of sparkling water. You're going to spill it on yourself. And he just kind of looks at me like, you can't tell me what to do. And, uh, you know, like a two-year-old. And just picks up the can and takes it and starts to pour it down the front of his shirt, right? Just like I said he would. And I kind of chuckle. I say, Graham told you that's what would happen. I knew you would spill your drink. And he said, I didn't spill my drink. I spilt mom's drink. (laughs) Well played Graham, you know? He didn't have any irony or humor. He didn't understand what that meant. He was just telling me like it is, right? It's kind of funny to think where our kids were and where they are now. And even if you don't have kids, just imagining like you're seeing before your eyes this young child, grow up, expand their knowledge of the world, learn about irony and humor and things like that, and grow. We call kids sponges, right? They're sponges because they just take in all of this information, and their world is expanding at such a great rate, and they're changing. And it's funny, we often contrast the sponginess of a kid and growing and changing and learning with the non-sponginess of adults, right? I mean, it's hard to change when you get older. You like your stuff and you like your bed. Just go and stay at someone else's house in an Airbnb and be like, why is this mattress wrong, right? Like, it's hard for us to grow and change. It's hard for us to grow and change. It's hard for us to learn. And it kind of begs the question, what would it require What data point? What new thing? What do I have to learn? What do I have to do for me to really change? For me to change, especially my mind. I was listening to a podcast the other day that was talking about a phenomenon that's kind of happening in conservative Christian circles. You may have heard of it. It's called deconstruction. And what it was talking about or what that means is that people in the Christian faith, normally very conservative or fundamentalist kind of strains of the Christian faith, are beginning to ask difficult questions and sometimes even dismantling the faith of their childhood. Sometimes they walk away from Christianity completely. Sometimes they stick it out, but their faith is kind of changed. And, and uh, it's uh, it's a phenom- yeah, it's happening a lot right now. You probably heard it buzzing about in the ether. And the interviewer was asking someone who kind of had knowledge in this phenomenon, and he said, well, let me ask you a question. Does someone who doesn't have a Christian worldview, do you ever see someone who doesn't have a Christian worldview dismantle that worldview and come to faith in Jesus? It's a great question. And the guy kind of paused for a second, he thought about it, and he said, not really. I don't see that very much. And then this is what he said, I don't think the church would be able to handle someone who is going through those kinds of doubts and explorations. Now, immediately, that just kind of made me grieve. 
that made me sad. First, it was like, well, what kind of church do you go to or have you been to that doesn't allow people to struggle and ask questions and have doubts and bring themselves to the table and see what God has to say? What churches are you going to? I hope our church is not one like that. I hope we have room, right? I mean, if God is God, certainly He's big enough for our questions and doubts. If the church is God's church, certainly He's big enough for us to ask difficult questions. Like, I was in youth ministry for 13 years, and if you think people aren't asking questions in this church, just ask your teenagers. They're asking lots of questions. They're taking in the data of the world. They're trying to figure out how it fits. And I've got just a couple of important things to say about that that is going to help our conversation today. Um, One is we've got to be a church that's able to handle that. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Deconstruction is not always completely bad. You're like, whoa, hold on a second. Let me make sure I'm tracking with you. It's not always completely bad. If the church listen, doesn't listen to all of the philosophical questions going on in the world, if the church just kind of puts our metaphorical fingers in our ears and goes, la, 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 I'm not listening, that's not helpful. We actually do want to be able to interact, take in new information, listen to questions, see how they like how that connects with God's Word and ask, okay, God, how do we respond to this in a different way? We're not saying we're going to jettison your Word in our lives. We're just saying, okay, God, we need to learn. This happened all throughout the history of the church. Right in the early church, people were asking questions. Okay, well, what's the nature of Jesus? And the church had to get together and be like, huh, I don't know. We got to talk about that and pray about it and figure it out. Healthy individuals, like kids, (laughs) healthy churches are able to handle those questions, to figure out how to respond, to learn, to grow, and to listen. That's what's healthy. And really, it's been hard for the church, I think, recently, hasn't it? Because we've had a lot of questions coming our way. It feels like the world is speeding up. We've had to be thinking about, okay, the Me Too movement. What do we say about that? Church abuse scandals, right? Just public health issues of going through COVID. You know what I mean? We've had to be on our toes as we think about all the difficulties that life is throwing our way. What does God say? How does He respond? How can we be a loving community in light of all those things? So I'll just say it again. We don't need to fear new cultural moments. If God is God, He is big enough to handle the questions that people have in this life, Right? Now, the reason I go through that lengthy introduction is because now we have a man named Saul. And ironically, or very interestingly, Saul Saul knows some stuff about the Jesus movement happening. But what does Saul do with the Jesus movement? This is what he does. La, 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 I don't want to hear about it. It was difficult for him. It was a challenge to his faith. It was a challenge to what he thought was the faith of his forefathers. He didn't know what it was going to look like to grow, and so he did what we tend to do when we have lots of doubt, we, come, we become a fanatic. But God had other plans for Paul. He had something better, actually, than just deconstruction. God's plan for Paul was conversion. 
It's funny when I think back about that commentator saying, I don't know if the church could handle someone deconstructing their old worldview and becoming a Christian. I thought to myself, that was me. And I know a lot of you probably have a similar story where you're like, I thought the world was one way, and then Jesus showed up, and I stepped into something new and beautiful. God has hope for us in His grace, and it's called conversion. He has hope for us in His grace, and it's called conversion. And so, what we're going to do today is whether… <laughs> is we're going to kind of look, and we're going to see conversion. We're going to see it in Paul's life, and we're going to say, okay, conversion is not just something that happens in a Christian's life one time. It does happen one time. But amazingly, God lays the foundation of conversion in our life, and then slowly but surely, all throughout our life, keeps changing us more and more into the image of Jesus. And we're going to look at it, we're going to look at that phenomenon kind of through Paul's eyes in two ways. We're going to look at the grace that causes conversion, and then we're going to look at the way of life that results from conversion. The grace that causes conversion, the way of life that results from it. Okay, y'all ready? That was a long intro. Let's jump in. Look with me at verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, but Saul… Luke here, who's writing Acts, changes vignettes from the powerful working of God to build the church in Philip and the eunuch, now to the destructive and vindictive work of Saul as he's trying to kill the church. We find that Saul is, quote, still breathing threats and murder, still, because at the end of chapter 7, Saul is presiding over Stephen the first martyr, where the young men threw, who threw the stones at Stephen then laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul who approved of his execution. In uh, chapter 8, verse 3, Saul is said to, have, to be ravaging the church. That's a Greek word that's only used once in the New Testament and once in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it comes from Psalm 80, 13, where the church or the people of God are said to be like a vine, and a boar gets into the vineyard and starts ravaging it. Paul is being presented to us as kind of this beastly enemy. Right? Even look, he snorts threats and murder. He's like a wild beast. He's so ruthless that he doesn't just attack men, it's the men and the women. He's indiscriminate. Notice, Paul isn't getting ready to be saved. <laughs> right? He's not going to his friend's seeker Bible study. He is not getting interested in the things of God in this way or the things of Jesus. He's not doing good works that get him closer to divine grace. No, Paul is heading the wrong way. But then God, but then God intervenes in verse 3. A holy light flashes across the sky. It's got to be really bright because it's noon in Syria. And then Paul falls to the ground, blinded, Here's Jesus' voice speaking to him, appealing to him, why are you persecuting me? He's appealing to his mind, appealing to his moral conscience, why are you doing this to me? It's not an attack, it's an appeal. Who are you, Lord? Paul responds. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Struck to the heart and struck blind, fasting, praying, obeying Paul in that instance is changed. 
changed by the grace of God. John Sott says it beautifully. Paul, who had expected to enter Damascus in the fullness of his pride and prowess, as a self-confident opponent of Christ, was actually led into it, humbled and blinded, a captive of the very Christ that he had opposed. But God. You might remember those beautiful lines from Ephesians chapter 2 after describing our sinfulness and our brokenness and our deadness and running away, but God being rich in mercy with the great love with which He loved us made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace that you have been saved. What is your but Saul, but God story? Do you have a but Saul, but God's story. If you were writing Acts chapter 9 for yourself, what would it say? But Matt, still hating his parents, looking with covetous eyes all around. But Matt, anxious and worried, hoarding his money and resources. But Matt, making a name for himself. What is it for you? Don't forget the story of where you were. Don't forget the story of where you were. Don't forget it. And if you, praise God, if you grew up in the church and you've never known a day, if you've never known a day that you didn't know Jesus and looked to Him for your salvation, praise God. That's beautiful. That's a great story too. So what do you do? Well, you look at your present sin patterns and then you just turn them up to 11. And you say, I, that's what I could have been. That's what I could have been. But God... But God, don't forget it. You can always add to your story, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved me, made me alive with Jesus by grace. I have been saved. I was going the other way. God's grace was not merited by me. I wasn't looking for it. I didn't do something great so that God would love me. It was demerited. That's what grace means. You can't add anything to it. You can't win it. All we can do is praise the amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. So the ultimate cause of our conversion is always the grace of God. But what's cool, too, is we can actually look back and see these moments where God was actually doing something in our lives, in our lives even before we came to faith. There are secondary or subsidiary causes of our coming to faith. And here's what I mean. Paul talks about his conversion a couple times. Luke actually talks about the conversion story three times in Acts. And and in chapter 26, when Paul is telling Agrippa about his conversion story, he says this, recounting the story that Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. That wasn't in this chapter 9, but it's there in in chapter 26. And what does that mean? It's hard for you to kick against the goads, Jesus says to Paul. Well, this is what it is. It's an agrarian metaphor where the oxen are supposed to plow a straight field, and the farmer, when the oxen start kind of veering off, takes a stick and pokes him, pokes the oxen so that they go straight, okay? And so what Jesus is saying to Paul is he's like, I've been poking you for a long time. I've been poking you for a long time. Paul's conversion happened in this instance, but God's grace has been moving him all his life. 
And it's kind of cool. When you look through the pages of the New Testament, we actually get a little bit of a biography of Paul's goading, like what Jesus was doing. Just think about it with me. Paul and Jesus would have been about the same age. Paul would have been in the temple. It's very probable that he would have been there when Jesus was teaching. He would have certainly heard about Jesus' miracles. He would have been present in conversations with other Pharisees like Gamaliel, his teacher, when they would have been like, what are we going to do with this Jesus guy? He's threatening our way of thinking about things. Paul also would have been worried just like the other leaders because they were never able to produce a body. Uh Uh-oh, maybe these resurrection stories are true. Think of the other goads in Paul's life. He was there for the stoning of Stephen. Do you remember what Stephen said when he was stoned? He didn't plead for mercy. He didn't say stop. He didn't try to get out of it. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Do not hold this sin against them. Don't hold the sin against them. The man who is the one who is telling people to do it hears that ringing in his ears all the time. Don't hold the sin against him. You see, Jesus has been preparing Paul for a lifetime. He's been preparing Paul for a lifetime. He's a murderer and persecutor of the church, right? He knows that's wrong. (laughs) He knows it's wrong to murder. That's like against one of the commandments, right? He also tells us in his uh, letters that he's a covetous man, so he fears God's law. He doesn't know what God is going to do, that he's a sinner. And it begs us the question, begs the question for us, what were the goads that brought you to Christ? What were the goads that brought you to Christ? It's a wonderful thing on a Sabbath afternoon to talk with your friend or your spouse or your kids or whatever and say, these are the things that God used in my life to bring me to Himself. Whether it was a friend inviting you to a Bible study, whether, whether it was a really hard thing that happened in your life that God used to pray to Him for the first time. But also, this is a question for my unconvinced in the room. If you're unconvinced, I promise you, By virtue of living in God's world, God's glory has been pushing at you too. Like, that's what what Paul actually says in Romans 1. We know the Creator somehow. He's back there. We know God exists. We know He's doing something. Don't ignore the prodding. Don't ignore the prodding. God, if you're real, if you're there, Jesus, if you're resurrected, let me listen to your prodding. So, the cause of Paul's conversion, God's grace, God's grace, nothing else, nothing more, nothing we add, God's grace. The result, now we are called, commissioned, set apart to follow Jesus' way of life, Jesus' way of life. Look at verse 15 for me. Jesus speaking to Ananias, go, for he, that is Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. When God brings us the grace of conversion, He then puts us into a space and a community of people who choose the way of the cross moving forward. Did you hear it? I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for my name. 
If I was creating my own religion, I'm not. I wouldn't say, hey, come and join my religion and take up your cross and follow me. Hey, come and join this new religion. You're going to suffer in this life as we head towards resurrection hope, right? That's not the way that you would sell it, right? How would you sell it? Prosperity, comfort, everything's going to be good for you. Time out. How has the American church been selling it? Prosperity, comfort, everything's going to be good for you. Why are people leaving (laughs) the American church? The Atlantic ran a good article last week that you should read. It's entitled, The Misunderstood Reason Millions of Americans Stop Going to Church. And in the article, the author cites a study in a book, um, and, and it basically says this, people are not leaving the church in America because they, necessarily because they disagree with the theological or moral stance of the church. Some are, some are, but not a lot of people. Most people are leaving the church in, in America because they just kind of have other things to do. Slowly but surely, their time and their effort and their energy gets choked out, and it's easier to go to brunch than it is to go to church. Maybe Jesus will help us here, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things will enter in and choke the Word, and it'll prove unfruitful. But the reality of 21st century American life is that not that we're doing great. <laughs> it's not, we're not doing great. That's what the author says. The problem in front of us is not that we have a healthy, sustainable society that doesn't have room for church. The problem is that many Americans have adopted a way of life that has left us lonely, anxious, and uncertain how to live in community with other people. Man, I think that, I think that describes us, right? And what's interesting is that the article says this, what we should do is require more of our people and not less of our people. More and not less. In other words, a church has to become a cruciform community, a community of the cross, a community that says, no, no, it's better to suffer, sacrifice, serve first, because we know resurrection is coming. It's better to do the hard thing Because that's actually how we are going to offer something different, countercultural, hopeful to this world. And this actually formed a big part of Paul's theology. You can hear it just in a couple of places. Death is at work in me, so that life can be in work at you, at work in you. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or again, I am being poured out as a drink offering for your faith. When God's grace grabs a hold of you, it also commissions you. It commissions you to a way of living that prizes sacrifice for others. Look at verse 2. What are the early Christians called? People of the way. It wasn't, they're not described as all of the theological commitments that they had. Those are good. They are described as a people who live the way that Jesus lived. The way. A life of obedience. Doing the thing that is right, not the thing that is easy. A life of sharing our faith, putting ourselves out there, getting into awkward conversations, because we know it's better. A life of service, 
learning how to live with a little bit more margin in our lives so that we can be present with people who need us. And a life of forgiveness, a life of forgiveness, bearing in ourselves the penalty, the difficulty of that person's sin so that I can love that person and set them free. Redeemer Church can only offer something to our burnt-out world if we intentionally think through the fact that we are called to pick up our our cross, suffering, service, sacrifice, humility. It's beautifully reflected. It's beautifully reflected in this passage where the man Ananias. Think of the story. In verse 1, Paul goes to ask the wicked high priest Caiaphas for letters to imprison and bind Christians, right? Caiaphas has been getting people to do things for him for a while. He's deputized Judas to betray Jesus and deputized or cajoled Pilate to crucify him. And now he's like, great, I've got this guy, Paul, and he's going to go and kill these Christians for me. Wicked high priest. But what does the true high priest do? What does the true high priest do? He takes this humble servant, Ananias, and he appears to him and he says, Ananias, I'm going to deputize you to offer something beautiful to this guy. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. And Ananias is like, but he's been killing my friends. (laughs) But Ananias knows the way. He knows the way. The way of the cross. The way of life. The way of service and humility. And I love what he says in verse 17 to Paul, brother, brother Saul. Almost all of us know the story of Jean Valjean. I'm not going to go into it again. If you don't know the story of Jean Valjean, you know how he like stole some silver and then was captured by the police. And then the bishop said, but you forgot the silver candlesticks and he set him free. Then there's three movies. There's a mini series on PBS. You can even read the book. It's a great story. But I didn't really know the interchange that happens in the book before this happens, okay? So I'm just kind of going to go over it for a second. Valjean asking the bishop, you don't know me. You haven't even asked my name. Why are you helping me? And now quoting Victor Hugo, the bishop, seated at his side, laid a hand gently on his arm. You need have told me nothing. This house is not mine, but it's Christ's does not ask a man his name, but whether he is in need. You are in trouble. You are hungry and thirsty, and so you are welcome. Everything in it is yours. Why should I ask your name? In any case, I knew it before you told me. The man, Valjean, looked up with startled eyes. You knew my name? Of course, said the bishop. Your name is brother. Your name is brother. When we are converted. When we're brought into community with God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we are brought into this fellowship with Jesus and His sufferings so that we would be commissioned to be a community to welcome others into the house of God and call them brother and sister. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your love for us. We thank You that You saved a wretch like me, that we were heading the other direction. We were busy building our own lives, that we were doing what we wanted to do. Yet, Lord, in Your grace and in Your mercy, You came and You changed us. 
We pray that that same grace that changed us would commission us to service, to walk in the way. Help us to walk in your way, Lord Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.